Justify prove to be right or reasonable Justification is at the heart of all legal and political argument but at a time when argument itself is slave to appearances it is time to bring back a culture of justification Justify a podcast on law and politics in India from the Vidhi Center for Legal Policy hosted by Orgo Sen Gupta Hello and welcome again to Justify In this episode we are going to be discussing the role of religion in the indian constitution our point of departure is going to be the judgment of the karnataka high court which upheld the karnataka government's decision to disallow the wearing of the hijab by muslim girl students in college classrooms uh, while a lot has been written about the judgment itself both for it as well as against it I think the judgment provides a great point of departure to discuss what exactly does religion mean in the constitution of India and more generally what is the role of religion in public life in India does being secular necessarily mean that we are irreligious to discuss these issues i'm delighted to have my friend rag yadav uh, who's an assistant professor at the national law school bangalore uh, and with whom Uh, I've written an article on the hijab judgment called "Have Faith, Be Liberal," so you can look at that article to understand what's going to come in the next forty minutes. Though I hope that this will be a more fleshed-out version of what we could write in eight hundred words. Rag, welcome to Justify. Thanks for having me, Orgo. Uh, so, Rag, this is very different from the discussion that we had last time. I remember last time we were discussing legal education, but in some senses, it's also very similar. uh because of the fact that when we think about the role of religion in in our lives and in some sense in our education system there is this commonly perceived notion and i and we've been discussing this earlier that we don't want to think of questions of religion necessarily as part of an educational curriculum because we tend to think that it's Uh, associated with ritualistic mambo jumbo that it's kind of uh, uh, ascetic philosophies and very otherworldly in nature so what exactly in your view is the understanding that we have commonly about religion uh, in our lives i know that's an open ended question but i think that's a good place to start so orgo actually i am uh... maybe if i start with education which is perhaps the thing that i'm uh, involved in daily and then and that concerns the hijab case as well and take off from there so i think in when we talk about religion and politics we've spoken a lot about politics but we need to speak a little bit more about understanding what exactly religion can mean because there are all sorts of different understandings of religion that are usually clubbed together and in my understanding when i look at those different things that we bracket under religion they are not necessarily all the same thing so just to give you an example um, in my teaching experience with students over the last couple of years uh, i was thinking and i could think about three kinds of responses that i usually got when i spoke to my students about religion or when i thought of it myself so the f- first kind of uh, experience answer that i usually get from students is a general aversion to anything religious or spiritual speaking about indic or hindu thought and there is a debate about which word you use uh, there is some kind of a, 
uh, inherited dislike for these kinds of terms and it comes from many different places and it's not necessarily a bad thing. So one group of people see it, like you said, as abstruse, polysyllabic, metaphysics, uh, meant only for some committed philosophers sitting somewhere uh, in a cave or in their study. And it's not particularly useful for a modern society. So this is that debate between religion and modernity and must we, as we become more modern and more progressive, must we abandon religion? And then if we abandon it, what else do we use as a source of values and norms? So that's one kind of response I get. The second kind of response that I get is, and this is uh, prevalent and not without reason, is religion is especially associated with its more crude forms. Uh, when we speak of Hinduism, it is often associated with, sometimes even seen as coexistent with the caste system. Uh, when we speak of Islam, when I speak informally with my students, is often associated with uh, regressive practices found in some communities. So there is a sense that uh, religion is kind of like, you know, an atavistic drag on our past, something that we can tolerate uh, till we have to maintain some kind of social harmony. And uh, that's about it, but it's not really something that provides you with a sense of uh, value. And the third um, is religion that is associated with a certain political outlook on the world. Now, this is an interesting phenomenon because you can see religion as philosophy, and I'll just say a quick word about that. But often religion is seen today because we're in very fractious times as kind of like a proxy battleground for what political ideology you hold. And often when we discuss religion, one gets this sense that you're actually trying to discuss politics uh, in a disguised way. So these are the three kinds of general aversion. If I were to stop you for a moment, and if, you were to, if I were to think about one common thread that runs through each of these three different types of aversions that you've noted, it seems to be that religion is somewhere understood as organized religion. Organized religion is what drives some political movements, uh, not just in India, but elsewhere. Uh, in India, of course, there's a there's a big question mark as to whether Hindutva as a philosophy has anything to do with the Hindu religion. Savarkar would perhaps say no to that, but that's a different debate. Let's get to that later. Uh, but but it is but but the politics of religion has to do with organized religion. The fact that it's a drag uh, in some senses, as in these practices that are there, are also practices that are part of an organized religious community. And some part of the first point, though not entirely which is the part that makes religion seem like ritual and ceremony and uh, you know whether it is in Sanskrit or rather some other language that most people don't understand, it all seems to point to a certain kind of organized way of thinking about certain things. Uh, and it's more about the organization than about the thought. So do you think that there's something there about separating religion if there is something really called religion simpliciter from its organized form, which is leading to these aversions. I think you've hit the nail on the head because in my understanding of religion, uh, both as an academic and as someone who practices religion, uh, the organized form of religion actually is, if you look, you know, just at the philosophical literature, you will find references after references across traditions. I was recently reading Kabir's poetry. If you read Radhakrishnan, Swami Vivekananda, Sri Aurobindo, uh, Gandhiji also to a certain extent, you will constantly find this refrain that the true religion, the deeper core of religion is not about any organized setup, 
regulated by some imposed scripture. Uh, it's not about any groupism or identity. It's rather a way of inquiry, of seeking into the deeper law of your own being. Uh, it's a form of scientific experimentation with a scientific temper uh, into you know, the deeper truths of your existence. Now, one can obviously understand it at uh, different levels. We may engage in very detailed debates about the ultimate natures of reality and what is the correct ontology and so on. Or we may also look at it for ethical principles and morals by which we can develop uh, a better, freer, nobler life. That's the kind of religion that I find when I go back to the scripture that I am familiar with and when I read uh, you know, the best commentators that we have. Now, it's in fact this distinction that I think is very important in separating uh, the true religion from the kind of religion that I just noted people are averse to. Those three aversions that I noted, I don't think are without reason. But what ends up happening usually is that we throw the baby out with the bathwater because we tend to think that all religion looks like this organized kind of religion. Uh, it's usually some creed, uh, some dogmatic understanding of things. It's about beliefs and superstitions and unthought out practices. But the core of religion actually is not that. The core of religion is a very, is a radical individual seeking for knowledge, which is not based on belief or blind faith, but is based ultimately on experimentation and experience. Right? And that's the core of, at least in my understanding, of the Indic religion. So if one were to ask the question, uh, if one reads Swami Vivekananda or Sri Aurobindo and one asks the question, do you believe in X, Y, or Z practice? Uh, in my view, one would likely get the answer that the question is not about belief. The question is about whether you have investigated, experimented, read, and discovered the truth for yourself. And that kind of religion, I think, actually is the more I speak with students and once we get past this crust of religious aversion, uh, there is an opening. They find it exciting. They at least find it interesting enough to pursue further. And that kind of religion is not only compatible, I think, with being secular or with uh, having a sense of individual liberty, but in fact is one of the deepest groundings for it. And so I think this is what has led uh, you know, Radha Krishnan and Swami Vivekananda and Sri Aurobindo to base their understandings on liberalism by drawing on these deeper moral and cultural resources. So I think that's where the debate has to lie. No, so I think that there's a lot to unpack there, but let's, if you were to try and take it uh, strand by strand and without uh, getting into the questions around uh, secularism or, or, or constitutional secularism at this point of time. Um, Let's first take this point, which you said is the core of religion, which is an act of seeking, uh, seeking for knowledge, perhaps with the ultimate aim of seeking for truth. Um, and I think there can be no cavil about the fact that, you know, that that is that is what the core of uh, an understanding of religion is, irrespective of what texts you use uh, in order to help you in that path. Uh, but there seems to be, when you, when you said that, you said something that was interesting, which you said that there is a almost a scientific temper in that approach, that that approach is almost, when you were speaking, it seemed a bit like scientific experimentation, that you're doing something, you're, you have a question, you're trying something out, you're seeing whether it's working, 
If it's working, then great. If it's not working, then you're trying something else. Uh, but this goes contrary to currently dominant understandings of religion being antithetical to science, uh, that it is not based on method, it is not based on rigor. Uh, it, is, it is based on a certain kind of experience that is, that is at its core individual uh, and so cannot easily be proved uh, in, 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 in a register that we understand. So how would you how would you respond to that? Is religion like science or is religion unlike it? Or is there a is this framing incorrect? I think that's a very deep and philosophical question. And if I just take a step back, I think if we start asking that question, we've already taken one step away from the kind of dogmatic organized religion that we're speaking about. So if our public dialogue were happening in this domain right now, I think we would already be much better off. So that's just a sort of background point. I mean, on this issue, this has been uh, an interesting debate that has been happening between science and spirituality as to whether there is any validity to religious experience and so on and so forth. Um, if I were to just put it in two simple propositions, uh, although they will be quite uh, broad. The first is, I think science has rightly attacked one kind of religion, which is not sufficiently seeking and which bases itself on some kind of unreasoned authority of some scripture or of some set of canonical beliefs. And in doing that, science has, and atheism in general, has done a great service to push those with belief, push those with faith, to reason out their understandings a bit more. But where science, uh, in my view, and I'm almost quoting Swami Vivekananda on, the, uh, on this, where science has perhaps exceeded its mandate is in thinking that the scientific method of external observation, uh, the way of the natural sciences can yield truths about questions of value rather than just questions of what exists and the mechanics of existence. Not that, but the questions of what is the meaning of existence and so on and so forth. In those questions of value, science has come up against a hard wall. Now, that is not a criticism of scientists. That's just, in my view, uh, an understanding of the limitations of the scientific method. And I think this is why today we see with a number of different debates, both in the academic domain, in the popular domain, in the scientific domain, we see greater dialogue, mutual respectful dialogue between science and spirituality. So you have you know, popular initiatives like uh, the Dalai Lama's uh, Center for uh, Research into Neuroscience Research into Contemplative Practices. You have the uh, very famous problem in philosophy called the hard problem of consciousness. And that is yielding some wonderful literature, which is demonstrating how some spiritual truths embodied in different scriptural traditions, especially Vedanta, which I'm more familiar with, are actually deeply compatible with uh, scientific uh, discoveries that are being made. Now that's, I think, the avant-garde of the of, of scientific uh, study. I'll just make one distinction here between uh, a scientific temper, which our constitution requires us to have, and the scientific method of the natural sciences. So religion, I think, has the former, as does science. But to think that the scientific method of the natural sciences is the only way of going about accessing 
the truth of things, accessing the meaning and value of our life, I think is a contested proposition. And there is and, a lot of and just and just sort of thinking even within the framework of religion, as if you were to think about paths to moksha in Indic thought, as in there is no one path, right? As in you have karma yoga, bhakti yoga, jnana yoga, raj yoga, now kriya yoga, you know, there are there are multiple paths to 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 attaining knowledge. And and these paths are 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 very distinct from each other, uh, and uh, and and some may find their 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 path in 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 bhakti, and someone else may find it in jnana. And 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 part of jnana, I've always felt that part of jnana could be, in some sense, some kind of method that is analogous to a scientific method, because at the end of the day, it's trying to seek enlightenment through knowledge rather than through action or devotion. Okay, and 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 so it seems to me that uh, all of what Indic religion seems to suggest is that there is no one way, right? There is no one way to achieving this, and that is a experiment and experiment, experiment and experience, which is something that is that is compatible with uh, not just the scientific temper, but perhaps even the scientific method. I think that's absolutely right. Uh, so Sri Ramakrishna, you know, very famously said, "It's in Bengali." I'm I'm with you, so I'm not going to say the original Bengali. Uh, he said, "Infinite paths to infinite reality." Jatopat, Tatopat. Absolutely. I'm glad I didn't say it. Yeah. Um, and there is a wonderful book actually for those who are interested by uh, Swami Medhananda, which is. Uh, entitled infinite paths to infinite reality which actually goes into detail into this question and the very idea behind uh, this kind of uh, sort of infinite existence is that there is a unique path to self discovery for each individual and obviously one can take uh, one is not constrained by any scripture from any domain and uh, our greatest sages and saints would have said this quite explicitly but at the same time and i think this brings us to a political question is it is useful to have a cultural space a cultural background which facilitates promotes and encourages this kind of self seeking and one can always say do this privately do this in your home and that's absolutely right ultimately this is an individual journey that one has to make and one may make friends and uh, along the way and create a community but to ignore the cultural dimensions of uh, this kind of a collective religious seeking in a syncretic way in a way where you can have multiple identities and where you are finding the law of your own truth in this scientific way uh, is i think very important and that is actually what i see as the cultural importance of religion in india not necessary not the organized religion or group identities which can be protected under the constitution they have their way they have their place but also this other dialogue about the public sphere being a place which can promote which can help which can make you feel comfortable in this kind of seeking and push you along the way a little bit right that cultural space which is i think a neutral central cultural space is where i think questions of science and the method of religion intersect with the questions of politics and culture and that's where we have to i think do some very careful thinking so that we don't uh, fall prey to uh, you know the kind of labeling and the fairly fractious kind of debate we have today yeah and 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 it seems that one of the effects of understanding ourselves as a secular country has been the fact that we think that 
religion is a private matter. Now, at its core, it's true that this kind of self-seeking is, is an intensely individual activity, as in that people can find their various paths, uh, and, 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 and there's no doubt about that. But there is this allied question of does the fact that religion is a private activity mean necessarily that there is no religion in the public sphere? Uh, and I think this gets us into the, the, the hijab judgment and what the hijab judgment was also trying to do uh, is it's trying in some sense, not just in saying that the hijab is not allowed, but it goes further. It's in a leveling down kind of argument to say saffron shawls are not allowed uh, to say that we don't want any overt representations uh, of religion in the public sphere itself. Now, Keeping aside the question of organized religion, and I think that we've, we've, we've dealt with, uh, Raj, I wanted to understand from you, what is your sense of the role of religion, which is, as we agree, an intensely private activity in the public sphere? And we can, we can limit it to India or take it as a conceptual matter. So I think there are two questions here. One is a political question and the second is a cultural question uh, and I think you will be able to speak better on the political or constitutional question. Um, so I'll focus on the second. Now what do I mean by a cultural question? So one can say that we have to be politically secular which is a fairly uncontroversial proposition in that the state should not discriminate anyone on the grounds of religion. The state should not have its own religion and impose it on anyone else. And uh, it should allow individuals the space, the privacy, and the freedom to follow whatever practice and way and method they want to, whether it's religious or otherwise. That, if I take those as the basic pillars of a political secularism, that's fine. Where I think things become interesting and where there is debate to be had is when we think that political secularism implies cultural secularism. Now, cultural secularism is the idea that as we become more progressive, more modern, uh, the public sphere will necessarily see a decline of religion. Uh, and it will not be that kind of overarching presence that we have seen where people draw values from it, where it is, uh, to use a slightly loaded term, the normative umbrella that regulates our uh, public activities. Now, the second idea I don't see in the constitution, I don't see anything in the constitution going one way or the other, but that seems to have been an obvious proposition that has been taken to be true in many debates, but I think that needs to be questioned a little bit more. Just a background on this, so uh, I think the roots of this traces to what is actually called the secularization thesis, and this was uh, you know, more Charles Taylor. Precisely. So Charles Taylor has written a wonderful book uh, called The Secular Age, which is about Western secularity. But I think it has many uh, learnings for us here also. So drawing from people like John Stuart Mill, August Comte, uh, Hume, uh, and so on and so forth, there was this idea that there is this progression of society that, and one can understand why in the late 1800s, early 1900s, this would have been a very uh, palatable view and a very interesting view that as science is taking over more and more ground, we will become rational. We will discover truths simply through by dint of our reasoning rather than having to deny on any scripture and so on and so forth. Now, in part, the secularization thesis is true, like I said, because 
our rational speculations, our insistence on evidence, our in insistence on uh, experimentation has meant that any religious belief which has elements of superstition or blind faith or devotion has now been questioned and put to the test. But in academic literature today, there is, I think, quite some evidence to say that the secularization thesis has not worked out in the way we thought we would, because religion has not declined. If anything, religion has seen a resurfacing in the last couple of decades. And what we need to now consider is not how soon will we leave religion behind, but rather how do we engage in a conversation between religion and secularism. Now, so when you say religion has resurfaced, doesn't do you mean to say political religion? Doesn't because uh, I, I, or or are you making an empirical claim? So this is an interesting uh, question. So let me just offer some. There were a couple of studies where. Um, people were asked, are you religious today? Now, usually what that meant was, do you follow, do you call yourself a Hindu? Do you call yourself a Muslim? Do you believe in the authority of X or Y text? Or do you go to church? Now, there is not as much empirical evidence on this uh, as I would like to make a universal claim. But what it indicates is that more people are saying that they are less religious, but more spiritual. Now, they may not have some grand understanding of what spiritual means as a whole category, but people seem to be rejecting that kind of organized religion based on blind faith and wanting more and more to develop their own unique understandings of the world and so on and so forth. So I mean religion, not in the it's organized... It's actually quite interesting, sorry, if you were to take a slight aside, given that you said this, I, I, as a, this is a line that I used to, when I was asked this question, uh, sometimes when I was in college, and I used to have this talk response that, you know, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Uh, and now that you say it, as in, I think what was going on in my head, and I don't know whether this is the case there uh, in the in the respondents, but what was going on in my head is that there are several facets of organized religion that I don't like. I don't like, and this is not just about the Hindu religion, but I don't I, I don't like the fact that there are ceremonies which are conducted in Sanskrit that I don't understand ninety percent of. I don't like the fact that. Uh, that, that, I, I mean, I, I don't like the fact that religion is used as a tool for political mobilization. Okay, so there are certain facets of organized religion that I don't like. But I also wanted to contest the notion that this is all that religion is, because religion always to me has been the two minutes of quiet in the morning, every morning where I sit down and think of nothing or try to think of nothing and tell myself that thinking of saying that you're thinking of nothing is also thinking of something. So try and think of nothing. Uh, so, I mean, it's in those moments, in those silences where we try and find our inner selves, you know, without trying to make a sort of too loaded a claim. Uh, but, but I think that this statement that, you know, we're not, we're not religious, but we're spiritual is perhaps for me, at least, as I thought, I'll just share this as an aside, there's no question here, but was, was essentially a repudiation of organized religion and perhaps a reaffirmation of the fact that religion is far too precious to yeah. be thrown out with the bathwater. I think that it's, it's I mean, I, I, if I also take a quick biographical uh, detour. So I grew up in a family which went to the Arya Samaj. And so my grandmother would take us every Sunday and on every... Uh, important occasion, uh, someone from the Arya Samaj would come and do a havan. Now, 
at one level it was good because it doesn't really matter no one's thinking about great questions about what is the truth of things or what is the basis of value it's a cultural practice it provides cultural grounding gives a sense of security family comes together and so on and so forth and that's perfectly fine that has its place no one is going to disagree with that the problem often is that that kind of religion is also if it is politicized most likely to lead to some kind of violent or blind forms of devotion right the extreme of this you would think of the crusades or you can think of you know uh, religious persecution uh, questions of untouchability and so on and so forth where blind superstitions uh, which would otherwise seem quite harmless and benign when you're doing a havan at home uh, somehow on the public sphere all added up together lead to quite an ugly sight so i had a similar experience when i started growing up and reading those texts which is i started asking everyone in my family when i was younger Uh, why are we doing this because the texts don't seem to be saying this or the texts seem to be saying something different and neither anyone in my family nor unfortunately the pandit ji from the arya samaj seem to have any good answers and usually you would be met with a rich harvest of uh, moral platitudes right now or this is how it's always been you know yeah. that kind that's the standard response i used to get precisely so that's just an unthinking call to tradition and like i said it's culturally secure and i wouldn't want to take anyone uh, take that away from anyone unless you have something better to give to them to replace that now i think more and more people as uh, you know information is becoming freer or questions are becoming more uh, stronger and fiercer you are faced with these debates more often it's more difficult to be insular more and more people are going down this path of rationalist understanding now the first pit stop in that journey is it was for me like it is for you and most people is a rejection of religion because what you see of religion seems to make no sense but i think at least for me once you dig a little bit deeper you seem to realize that there are two ways of reforming religion one is this attack from outside whether it's a political attack or a scientific attack so it's like a tag team against religion but the second is a reform from within which is the kind that swami vivekananda and sri aurobindo uh advocated which is a rationalist critique of religion so that you can discover those deeper truths in it there's a very interesting um, description of this which is that true religion or spirituality is not anti rational it's supra rational it's beyond reason there are things to know in this world which cannot be known through reason ordinary religion is often infra rational which is that it hasn't yet gone through that anxiety and rigor of rational questioning and what we need to do is to go forth and forward with as many rationalist critiques of religion as we can but in doing that also open ourselves to the door that like you said you know in our daily practices that there is a space for silence there is a space for something beyond reason beyond the senses which is really the core philosophical beginning point of at least in my understanding the traditions that i am familiar with the vedantic tradition that's really where the self discovery and seeking begins to happen so i think that kind of cultural reform from within rather than a complete abandonment of all of religion is one alternative that people can employ and think about uh, in their lives because ultimately yeah. we need some source of value as human beings you can get it from literature you get it from poetry you get it from religion after a while these categories don't make much sense right so Absolutely. we have to get it from somewhere and the argument that i see the practical pragmatic argument is why not utilize 
some wonderful cultural resources that we have and take in a sense the easy path uh, of the path of least resistance of internal reform uh, rather than going through a very difficult and hardened route that the West has had to go through with this antagonism between religion and science and reason and faith, which has had all sorts of difficult political implications that we see even till today. Yeah, and I think that uh, this actually segues nicely with what the Karnataka High Court was trying to do, because in, in, in a sense, for me, I read the judgment as trying to make religion invisible in the public sphere, right? As in, it was a, it's a different matter. And I don't want to stress on this too much that, that, that what you were looking at is a particular item of clothing from a particular religion. And, I, and a lot has been written about that. And uh, I don't think that uh, fits in with the, with the discussion that we are having right now. But the, but the core idea was one of, of trying to make religion invisible in the public sphere. And that seems to be uh, the kind of thinking that you know, you said that while well, some of the aversions that your students have, as in it would be the sequitur of those aversions, is that you know, let's not talk about these things at all, uh, and let's 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 keep it private. But as you said, and I and I completely I, I completely endorse this, uh, that 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 every action has an equal and opposite reaction. It will mean that religion will come out in ways in which perhaps we don't anticipate, given that there is some value that core religion has. So it will come out in certain ways and it will uh, it will take certain forms, which will be, uh, which may be extremely unpleasant. And this is not for a moment to say that the Karnataka High Court was right or wrong, but I think the approach was to try and make religion invisible. It was particularly unfortunate that it was to make minority religions invisible because there's a lot of political connotations around that. But here's the, here's the question that comes out of that, is that if we were to take a, an alternative approach, okay, which is what Raghu and I were trying to do in that article that we wrote, is that we can have a celebration of religion in the public sphere. Now, how do you see that as consistent uh, with an understanding of secularism that we agree that the country uh, uh, is part of the basic structure of our constitution? Right. So. That's a difficult question. I'll perhaps offer two thoughts. So, but before that, I, I just want to make one point because uh, as I was telling you before this interview began, uh, or before this discussion began, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> so it felt like that before this discussion <laughs> began, I've been on the defensive. Yeah. Uh, after we wrote that piece in the Times of India, there was all sorts of name calling and uh, just unhelpful comments. Uh, the question was not that people disagreed, but that there was very little space to have this dialogue. And I think no matter where we stand, and I happen to disagree with the Karnataka High Court judgment, but I don't think, I don't think that the judges are ill-intentioned or that the judges uh, have done anything other than offer a reasonable version of the argument that they thought best fit in this position. I happen to no, but then let me let me make this question simpler because while there were a lot of name calling and that tends to happen whenever someone writes something, uh, but there was also a response written to our our piece by Minhas Merchant as in it was not name calling as in it was primarily about the fact and the main argument that he seemed to be making was the fact that if you are secular as a country then you cannot in any way have religion in the public sphere. Okay, so you cannot have hijab in the public sphere, you cannot have saffron shawls in the public sphere. This is a question of a school or a college which has to have a uniform and a uniform public sphere is the way to a secular India. 
Yes. How would you respond to a reasonably fair criticism of this nature, which is a way in which a lot of people understand secularism? Right. So I think the answer to that lies in understanding first, what is the public sphere? Because it's quite a vague expression. So you have a governmental public sphere, which is, you know, electoral politics, which is what members of parliament do, members of legislative assemblies do, what people in local government do. Now, in that governmental public sphere, obviously, it is not a good argument to say that I think X policy is fine because Y religion says it. So you can't have political authorities aligning with any particular religious beliefs. That's simply not admissible. You need to demonstrate the reasonableness and the validity of your argument to everyone, religious or otherwise. So that public sphere does not have any religion in it. And that's what I refer to earlier as political secularism. Now, then you have all sorts of other public spheres, right? You have the marketplace, you have schools, universities, colleges, uh, cinemas, workplaces. This is where we live our lives outside our homes. This is a place where we make friends. It is a part of our identity. It's where we carry ourselves. Now, in that public sphere, I think we can have a vibrancy of religious activity. And the state can ensure that that vibrancy of religious activity does operates within liberal principles to make sure that no one is harming anyone else, that there is no unreasonable demands being made upon any other community. But short of that kind of role as a referee, uh, I don't see why religion in the public sphere there is a cause for anxiety, uh, as the Karnataka High Court or Mr. Merchant said, but can also perhaps be a cause for uh, celebration of our diversity, where we are not just somehow tolerating another religion, but we are comfortable with it, we're mingling with it, and we can embrace the diversity and embrace the difference rather than be scared of it. I also quickly, perhaps, because I just want to provide some historical background. There was a very interesting, perhaps controversial um, uh, sociologist, T.N. Madan, who uh, had argued, you know, against uh, perhaps the idea of secularism that we're discussing right now. And uh, writing back in 1987, when there were a lot of, you know, which is sort of the last time when a lot of these problems were being debated uh, as deeply as they are right now in the public sphere, um, he had made the following remark that, and he was speaking about Jawaharlal Nehru, uh, and he said the following, he said that contrary to the expectations of a rationalist social science, economic growth and the breakdown of previous social relations uh, has not led to the denial of religion, but rather has led to the revival of religious identities, right? So the question for him was not how do you avoid or ignore religion and by relegating it to the private sphere, because that's simply not working. The Indian people, as a matter of each person's democratic choice, are religious but rather to say, how do these religious and secular identities mingle in the public sphere, rather than driving a wedge down the middle and saying religious identity at home, secular identity at the workplace. That seems to be a suboptimal solution. So I think Professor Madan got the question right. His answers uh, I don't necessarily agree with, but we need to figure out how we can be religiously liberal rather than asking people to necessarily make that choice. And that I think is where, uh, you know, India as a Dr. Radhakrishna had this very uh, interesting, uh, famous remark. I don't know if he was speaking humorously, but he used to say that uh, 
India is a small laboratory where all the experiments of racial and religious synthesis uh, can be undertaken in the world, undertaken in the world. So we are sort of, we have a bit of everything and our job to the world, our service to the world is to figure out how to make a sense of some kind of a peaceful, coexistent, harmonious sense of this uh, khichdi that we have. So the question right. to do that, I think. Yeah, so, and I think the way in which I first encountered this khichdi, and I, this is perhaps true for everybody, is perhaps in our schools, as I went to, a, going back to our biographical detour, I went to a missionary school where in all functions, as in there would be uh, a reading from the Gita, reading from the Bible, a reading from the Quran, uh, sometimes from the Guru Granth Sahib, uh, there would be a Christian hymn, and then there would be a, a Hindu devotional hymn. So there was this kind of, you know, I would say that, well, Maybe it was a celebration. Sometimes it felt a bit tokenistic. We used to say that, oh, here we go again. Uh, you know, it's the same thing that, I mean, I guess there was something in that when we said that it was the same thing that all four people are going to say uh, in various languages. Uh, but but I think that what is the, for, the question that, that, that always struck me is that how can the celebration be real? Okay, because in some sense, there is a certain, I would, I don't want to, belittle the importance of those four hymns being sung, right? Because I think somewhere the four hymns being sung was also a testament to the fact that uh, this is who we are, as in whether we like it or not, as in because whatever, it could go home sooner, but it would have to be accepted that, that this is who we are. Maybe there is a role there. But how do we transcend sort of more symbolic expressions of this celebration to try and make sure that we go from uh, sort of more passive words like tolerance and acceptance to embracing a kind of diversity. And, and I think that's, that's the question that I want to ask you because the Karnataka High Court also used this interesting word, uh, qualified public spaces. You know, like these are public spaces where there needs to be some degree of, of, of uniformity, but how do we embrace diversity in these kinds of qualified public spaces? So I think this is a question for each of us, uh, educators, uh, young adults, children, parents, employers, employees, businessmen, for everyone to think about and to embody in their own little micro environments rather than this being some kind of large constitutional question that has a single answer that we're going to get from the Karnataka High Court or the Supreme Court. I think the moment we do that, we have... Uh, given up a large amount of cultural power uh, to away from local communities and that will really be a, a, a sad state of affairs. So what can we do? I can perhaps only speak biographically. Um, what I've noticed often is tokenism, while it's well-intentioned, is often a kind of disguised politics uh, where you are afraid of saying what you want to say openly. And so you try and sort of skirt around the issue and you know, employ all matters of suggestiveness without seeing it openly. I would encourage, and I try to do this in my teaching practices, uh, my students may be able to verify this, uh, is to speak about the issue openly, to embrace diversity of opinion, to not hide behind uh, a facade of neutrality necessarily, but to say that there are differences, there are diversities, and that 
doesn't mean that we are lesser off for it or that we should be scared about it, but that is rather an invitation to more dialogue. So practically, for example, um, you know, in say in a school or a university, uh, it would be interesting to have uh, cultural exhibitions uh, from different religious traditions. Uh, musical expressions from different religious traditions. There are great traditions of art that we find in the great faiths, and uh, they could be welcomed there without anyone feeling uh, as though it is some kind of an imposition into a qualified public space. Yes, there are obviously limitations in certain public spaces, and I fully agree with the Karnataka High Court that there is some qualification required, but qualification does not mean a complete abandonment there is a big daylight between those two things. So that I think is uh, something that's uh, really important. So let me just end, for example, with one final remark. So uh, because this came up in a class that I was teaching. So it was a class on political theory and we were considering the views of uh, Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau. Um, and if you go back to their, re uh, to, to their uh, political theories, you will often find that they draw or engage quite liberally with Christian theological debates. Now, I don't think that makes them any lesser uh, political philosophers. If anything, it adds more context and culture to what they are saying. And so engaging with that debate, no matter what conclusion you reach, but at least entering that debate uh, is is extremely important. And in workplaces, we can celebrate different festivals like we do with our national holidays um, uh, without anyone feeling as though they are left out uh, or anyone feeling as though there is some kind of an intrusion by one community or another. Uh, yeah, the holidays are so particularly self-serving that even if the <laughs> feeling of intrusion is there, that would be outweighed by the feeling of laziness of having a holiday. But let's... Uh, but let's come full circle back to one issue. About okay, can I just quick, uh, say one thing? So there was a very interesting anecdote uh, that a colleague of mine told me. So uh, they were in school. Um, uh, there was a uh, girl from a Muslim family and she was given a special dispensation to wear uh, a hijab. This is many, many years ago. And this is in a smaller part of the rural part of the country. So there was not much politics and there was no political situation there. And it's very interesting. The, this was in, I think, fourth or fifth grade. And the children in fourth or fifth grade, when they saw this young girl, their first remark was about how beautiful she looked and how her uh, dress was uh, so pretty. And they also wanted to all dress up. And so it was a very innocent and nice reaction to uh, an account of religious expression, obviously assuming that the girl is not being forced to do this or anything of that sort. And I think that uh, if I can just make a small remark in, remark in defense of innocence, especially in universities and colleges, I think uh, small little interactions and engagements of that kind added up will go a long way towards having a slightly calmer, more sane public sphere where we aren't so scared and there, is, there isn't this constant tension uh, about uh, the politicization of, a, of what you say. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's beautifully put that uh, we need to be able to say more than a word in defense of innocence and in terms of just simple human feelings that come across in interactions between two human beings, irrespective of any of the other identities that are used to describe us. Uh, and I think, well, this might be a slightly complicated way to put it, that one of the ways in which the, the state or the system tries to ensure that we are 
seen as equal human beings rather than by our different identities is through uniforms in school, right? As in, I think uniforms in some sense is seen as trying to do away with the differentiations that exist to a certain extent. Uh, and that's the idea, right? The word itself is, is revealing. And, and one, of the, one of the genuine, very bona fide feedback that we received on the article about the hijab was the fact that we were always uh, open to having uniforms in school, right? As in, and, uh, and, and a uniform in school necessarily entails a certain uniformity. As in, and I think that kind of just goes with the term itself. Uh, and whatever it may be, whether it's a hijab or it's a, or it's a ring that someone wants to wear or a secret thread, or it need not even be religious. It could be, it could be something that uh, a, a kind of different kind of hairstyle, uh, whatever that is, as it, it, it militates against that uniformity. And given that this is a qualified public space, as what's wrong with saying that if you're in the school, you have to wear this uniform. Do you think that there's anything particularly uh, troubling about that kind of sentiment? Absolutely not. I'm completely in agreement with that. I would just make two uh, qualifying remarks. The first is that I think this is not a constitutional question. This is not a question for judges. This is a question for educators to decide based on the circumstances of the school that they find themselves in. And I don't think there is a single answer for all schools uh, in India or Karnataka or even perhaps a city. Each school is run differently. They are connected to the community and they will have the liberty. Educators should have the liberty and the wisdom to decide what works best for them. The second caveat, again, this is a pedagogical remark. This is not some political or constitutional remark is the debate is not whether we will have complete uniformity through uniforms or whether you know it's everything goes and there is a slippery slope and people will come wearing whatever they like and there will be some kind of uh, you know expressive anarchy uh, religious or otherwise and i can understand as an educator why uh, you know we would have anxieties about that um, you know as on a lighter side my concern in so at the National Law School is less with hijabs, but more with people turning up in their night suits. That I think is a more pedagogically worrisome fact. But I think if we as educators reflected and thought about how we can, within the bounds of having uniforms, welcome diversity, uh, whether it's through uh, allowing people to wear something on their body uh, that is compatible with the uniform or working it into extracurricular activities, into outside school activities, introducing them, like you said, to different texts. There are a whole set of innovative and interesting ways to introduce students to diversity. And that actually, I think, is something the Karnataka High Court, I am quite sure, if we were to speak with the judges, would be absolutely in consonance with. So I don't think there is that much of a divide as is being portrayed. There is a lot of common ground where uh, educators can come together and think of interesting, innovating way, innovative ways to uh, find common solutions. And I think uh, in law, perhaps the doctrinal term to describe that would be reasonable accommodation. Yeah. Uh, I'm not a big fan of that term. I, I, I genuinely think that it's more in terms of respecting difference and celebrating diversity, because that is at the end of the day, not only the core of religion, it's the, it's the core of Indic thought uh, and it's the, it's the core of 
what I think the constitution envisages as this country. Uh, so I think that there's a there, there needs to be a, a a genuine celebration and embracing of that diversity rather than really token ways of doing it or just accommodating somebody uh, because it's really not about accommodation. It's about respect and celebration. Uh, so Rag, I think we leave it here. We've, we've, we've shot, I wasn't looking at the clock. So I think we went over by, by quite a bit, but I think it was, a, it was an engrossing conversation. Uh, and I think it's, uh, it's particularly important for, for lawyers and law students perhaps to understand that constitutional questions are, are, are not decided in a vacuum. Um, and uh, in this non-vacuum in which it is decided, it's not just politics, but there is a, a lot of context and that context uh, could sometimes be pure religion, it could be philosophy, but I think the bottom line is that that context must be understood and, uh, and this beautiful world of, of Indic philosophy, which I must admit as that I have come, I have come to very late in the day is one that uh, I would urge everybody to explore. Uh, and uh, Raj, would you like to say something to, to end it? No, it was wonderful to have this conversation. And I actually wanted to uh, ask you some questions about constitutional secularism. Sure, uh, why don't you like, do that? And then we'll, we'll end it after that. I actually had one core question, which is that I was just browsing through the Constituent Assembly debates and I expected when I went in that I would find a lot of fiery opinions and deep debates and questions about what exactly is religion and the place of religion. And um, I confess that I didn't find that kind of a uh, very engaged debate uh, that I thought one would see. I don't know if it's because of the partition or because they said that this is a question that we're going to leave on the side. Uh, but in a lot of our debates, we've been attributing positions to the constitution. Uh, and my question to you is, do you think the constitution has clear answers for us or guidance for us on this? Or is this a question that we need to now think about uh, with the best resources that we have today? Well, yeah, as in I think when uh, Elena Kagan was a was the Solicitor General of the United States, and when Chief Justice Roberts asked her a question, uh, she responded with another question. And to that, Chief Justice Roberts said that usually the questions go the other way. Uh, <laughs> and I think this is what's happened here a little bit. But being put on the spot, I think uh, the short answer to your question is that the Constitution does go some distance towards answering some of the questions that have arisen recently, particularly on account of the hijab controversy. Uh, what does the Constitution say? The Constitution says broadly four things as far as religious freedoms are concerned. First, as far as this individual question that we were discussing, the individual aspect of religion, it says that every individual has the freedom to preach, practice, and propagate his or her own religion. That's the, that's the core freedom that exists. Number two is that it recognizes the fact that religion is also an organized group activity. And given the fact that it's an organized group activity, particularly keeping in mind all the marks, the the various sects of, particularly the various sects within the Hindu religion, uh, but also uh, autonomous institutions within the uh, within the Islamic realm and the various churches that exist uh, in in Christianity, there is a group right given to religious groups to manage their own affairs. So a certain degree of autonomy is provided for. 
third it says that the state what can the state do or not do this is what you called political secularism broadly the state cannot discriminate against anyone on the ground of their religion and the fourth there is a special right given to minorities to ensure that they can run educational institutions uh, and also preserve their language and script of choice okay broadly these are the four four things that the constitution does uh now are these remarkable not really because this is classically this is classic liberalism right this is what we understand uh liberalism to be that religious liberty to liberty to be that the constitution in its fundamental rights chapter is heavily borrowing from an anglo american tradition uh, of what religious liberty means so the fact about the state not discriminating the fact about the individuals having the freedom to practice speech and propagate religion as it is 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 well established in constitutional thought for over 200 years uh to in reference to the indian condition it adds this group right which which is sort of a re- recognition of the reality in india and also minority protection which is which is taken at that point of time to be critical to understanding the kind of nation that we are trying to create so i think to that extent it does check all the boxes but does the constant do the constituent assembly debate show a deep understanding of the place of religion in our lives perhaps no uh, and i think there are two factors to this the first is a very pragmatic one which is time 3 years is a very short time to draft a constitution and they've done a so herculean task to get this document together in that period of time so 3 years doesn't really allow deep philosophical debates on subjects but second also is that when you read the debates you understand that there is a there is a fair degree of understanding that religion does play a very important role in the lives of indians and i think there is a there is an understanding it's kind of unstated in places implicit but there is an understanding that religion is is important so i think that kind of forecloses any further question in terms of what do we mean by religion being important what kind of religion and so i've always been Been, been been pretty surprised by this that on one hand there is this acceptance that religion is important uh, and on the other hand as we are saying as though not saying it in those words but we are saying that like india is is secular without necessarily diving deeper into this because obviously this is where we've ended up right because we've said that we are secular and we understand ourselves as secular there is a there is a pretty dominant stream of thought which says that secular is irreligious and that is exactly contrary to what the constituent assembly uh, and the and, and the framers of the constitution meant so i think that the the short answer to your question is that the constitution is clear in terms of what it means by religious protection it could have gone much deeper into understanding what religion means vis-a-vis this the secular state that we are setting up and made it clearer because it's kind of implicit that secularism does not mean irreligiosity secularism does not mean religion is only in the private sphere secularism means that the state shall not establish a religion the state shall not discriminate against someone on the basis of religion it does not mean that religion ceases to be important or ceases to be visible in the public sphere and i think a lot more could have been done uh, in the constitution and i think that might have um, that might have solved some quest problems that we have it might have created some others i don't know uh, but i think that it did some basics i think it could do a lot more thanks also i 
I wish we could have this conversation for longer, but I think this is hopefully a, the beginning of answering several of these questions. So the next 10, 15 years are going to be an interesting time to see how- I hope so. Happen. I hope so. And I think that uh, as we, as a, as, as a constitutional law scholar, as in the constitution is never static. And I think it's, uh, it's incumbent on everyone who thinks deeply on these issues to engage with issues on religion and not treat it purely as a, as a matter in the private sphere. Because I think, as you said, the 10, 15 years to come will be a time of intellectual exposition, uh, but it will also be, be, be a time of political upheaval. Uh, and a lot of political upheaval will be on the grounds of religion. Uh, and I think it's very important for anyone who, who carries the, who, who, who has a place for religion, in their in their minds and hearts to to think and engage deeply with these issues. Uh, so thanks very much, Rag. As in, it was a it was a real pleasure talking to you, and hopefully this is the continuation of a conversation and not the culmination. Thanks, Argo. Lovely to be on. It's time for Clatter, our weekly legal quiz. Last week, I asked you to identify the connection between a sculpture by William Benz in Trafalgar Square and the Andaman and Nicobar Islands. The answer, which many of you got right, is Sir Henry Havelock. Havelock, who was a British general, had an island named after him, the Havelock Island in the Andamans, and also has its sculpture in Trafalgar Square. Havelock Island, as you might know now, has been renamed the Swaraj Island. The winner is Prashant Nagraj. Many congratulations, Prashant. A free subscription of Disney Hotstar is on its way to you. This week, our question is on the hijab. In 2006, the House of Lords ruled that a student of a school which allowed the hijab as part of its uniform could not claim the right to also wear a jilbab. That's a full body garment in the school. What is the name of this seminal judgment from the House of Lords? This is an easy one for law students, so do write in with your answers to justify at vidhilegalpolicy.in. All right answers stand a chance to win an exciting gift. Today, since we dealt with Indian secularism and diversity, there's only one song that really captures it, Janaganamana. Hear it in the voice of Rabindranath Tagore, the master, whose birth anniversary we're celebrating this week. Thank you for listening. Adjourn. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, Follow us on Twitter at Vidhi underscore India for regular updates. We are on SoundCloud and Spotify as Vidhi Center for Legal Policies podcast. You can also listen to us on Google Podcasts or iTunes. 
Email us at justify at vithilegalpolicy.in to share your comments and feedback on this episode.